everyone. We have a quick announcement before we get into the show today. SmartLogic, a custom web and mobile development shop behind this very podcast, is currently hiring. We're looking for a staff engineer with experience in Elixir, Ruby, Flutter, and more. Our team is fully remote, and we're open to applications from anywhere in the United States. You can read the full job description and apply at smartlogic.io slash jobs. Now, on to the show. Welcome to another episode of Elixir Wizards, a podcast brought to you by SmartLogic, a custom web and mobile development shop. This is season 10, where we are looking to the next 10 years of Elixir. We'll be talking with our guests about what the first 10 years might tell us about the future of Elixir. Hey everyone, I'm Owen Bickford, Senior Developer at SmartLogic. And I'm Dan Ivovich, Director of Engineering at SmartLogic. And we're your hosts for today's episode. For episode five, we're joined by Mike Wode, Senior Software Engineer at SparkMeter, and Tony Wynn, Lead Software Architect at Generac. In this episode, we're discussing the next 10 years of the beam on the electric grid. So, hello, Tony and Mike. How are you today? Hey, doing great. Hey, doing well. Good to see you. Awesome. Now, where are we talking to you from? Tony, which part of the country are you in? I'm in Tampa, Florida, born and raised. Awesome. Tampa, Florida. And Mike, what about you? I'm in Washington, D.C. For those of you who can see me on the camera here, there's a Capital view, you can see I have a little Lego set, the Capital. So I'm just down the street from you guys from Baltimore. That is excellent. Did you put that together? I did, yes. I did. That was me. Nice. That's awesome. Cool. So we're going to dig into the details of how your companies are using the Beam to give us a, hopefully, a more reliable energy grid. Before we get into that, for introductions here with Tony, we'll start with you. Tell us a little about your background, how you came to kind of get involved with Elixir and the electric grid. Yeah, totally. I've been programming for about 15 years. The first half of that was in the Ruby world. And then the last half, about eight years, I've been doing Elixir. I was trying to think back what actually brought me into Elixir. And I think it was functional programming in general. I had been a, a big fan of Gary Bernhardt. He did a talk about functional core and imperative shell. And that started me down the functional rabbit hole. And then coming from Ruby, Elixir was an obvious functional programming language to pick up. So started doing it on the side and eventually got it brought in to professional projects. Nice. And Mike, I know I see you frequently at meetups and conferences. Tell us a little about yourself as well. Yeah, sure. I originally went to college for electrical engineering and as kind of happens, I ended up pretty quickly changing. And my first real job was sort of back-end software engineering. Uh, and I've kind of been doing that ever since. Everything from mobile to hospital devices. I worked at a think tank once at one point in DC. And that spanned PHP, Python, Ruby. Read Joe Armstrong's Erlang book early on. And I found it really interesting and I tried to use it and like the syntax was kind of clunky to me and it wasn't easy to get it adopted. But I took away a lot of great lessons from that. And when I saw this position at where I'm at now, SparkMeter, I was really happy to come full circle both on my degree in electrical engineering and then also on the Erlang and Elixir side of it. Awesome. Sorry to hear you had to move on from PHP and Python. 
condolences. Oh, yeah. We we lament the PHP moving on deeply here. You know, you have to learn how not to do things first sometimes. Yeah, I've, I've worked in the Wild West days of PHP myself for a couple of years, so happy to be in Elixir land these days. And Dan, as we were prepping for this episode, we were thinking through questions and things we'd be asking about here. You've had some interactions with Electric Grid or just fascination with electronic engineering in general? Yeah, fascination with power, I guess. Fascination with big systems. I did large radar control systems and stuff in a previous job, and I've been exposed to maybe the periphery of these computer-controlled systems in various capacities. So super interested to hear how that's playing into to what you guys are doing. You know, it's interesting you guys both have some of the textbook transitions into Elixir, right? Like I'm doing one thing and then I read Gary Bernhardt or Joe Armstrong and I'm just like, yeah, all right, now I'm all in and looking for that opportunity to do so. So it sounds like, Mike, you came to this job for Elixir, but Tony, were you saying that you brought Elixir to your job? Yeah, I would previously worked in Elixir. I actually didn't have any knowledge of the electrical grid coming in to this job. I was looking for Elixir and I was looking for Elm at the same time. This is the number of companies that I know of that did that at the time, just a couple. Thankfully, uh, land the job here. At, at the time, we were in Bala and have been acquired by Generac since then. Awesome. My experience with the grid is very limited. I did work at a telecom, not using Elixir, but managing fleets, well, empowering technicians to manage a fleet of telecom devices. So I can kind of squint my eyes and imagine how some of that might apply to power grid but uh we'll get into it i'm curious for anyone who's not familiar with spark meter can you tell us a little bit about spark meter what's the elevator pitch and what's the kind of problems that spark meter is solving sure happy to we have a really great sentence or two on our website which totally escapes my mind but i'm going to give you kind of the way i describe it which is we kind of do three things we make and sell smart electrical meters. So those will collect energy consumed, voltage, current, all that kind of stuff, transmit that wirelessly. It can receive data and do a couple things on the meter side as well. So that's that's kind of the first component is this hardware component. The second is this software as a service um, to manage your grid. And a large chunk of that is also managing billing. And so that's the part that I work on the most. So that is communicating with these meters to get the data up to the cloud to our partners. So we we provide this service to grid operators. Part of that is just getting that data to them. And then another large part of that is managing. So we operate in a lot of emerging markets, so primarily Africa, but really around the world. It's something like 30 or 50 countries we're in. So prepaid billing is very popular in these markets, and it's something people are, are very familiar with. And it's, it's really a great model for both our grid operators and for the end customer. So a large chunk of the SaaS portion is managing various prepaid billing models related to how people are consuming electricity. And then the third, we also offer some analytics. I don't work on that part as much, so I'll leave that be, but we have some pretty cool stuff coming out there. More on our website, or maybe, who knows, I'll be talking about this in the future, but that's the gist of kind of what we do. Awesome. So when we think of internet things, Spark Meter is the internet of meters, kind of. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Awesome. I think when I'm driving around, I see a Generac generator every once in a while. So that's my introduction to Generac, but I'm sure there's a lot more to it than that. Tony, what is Generac? Yeah, absolutely. So we're traditionally a generator manufacturer. It's been around for something like 80 years, maybe. Don't quote me on it. But the leadership at Generac realizes that the clock is ticking on combustible 
engines to drive power onto the grid. We know in California and other places, it's just not going to be possible soon to be doing that. And so they're looking to transition into new technologies to be able to provide that resiliency back onto the grid. And so as our former company being acquired, what we do basically is capture flexibility in the grid and be able to give grid operators the power to harness that when they need to. So instead of building additional gas peaker plants or something like that, they can have programs with assets that um, different homeowners might own. For instance, you might have some kind of thermostat program where you agree to allow the utility to knock down your thermostat a couple of degrees for a certain number of hours, as an example. But we're basically a platform that can take all kinds of different assets. So it might be thermostats. Ecobee is a part of Generac now, for example. But it might be a battery manufacturer. It might be a smart meter. It might be anything like that. Okay. So when I turn on eco mode on a smart thermostat, it's, it's getting some signals from somewhere that maybe it's time to dial the temperature up or down just a little bit to, to save a little bit on costs. Right. And in aggregate, that can be huge for the grid at that moment. Interesting. And I imagine grid support also is increasingly relying on batteries and other types of backup power. Yeah, batteries batteries are awesome, right? Because there's always capacity in there and you can plan. You can go ahead and do some pre-charging when there's lots of capacity. So as much as providing additional capacity is certainly an issue, as we get more and more solar penetration, we see in places like Australia where they have overproduction kind of all the time and you don't want that falling on the floor. So if we're able to capture that and use that at other times, that's really powerful. Right on. So I'm kind of curious, of course, we're an Elixir podcast. I love Elixir. I'm pretty sure Dan loves Elixir. And I think you guys are probably also at least somewhat fond of Elixir. But Elixir hasn't won the world on everything yet. What's the more common tech stack? What are people in the grid space more commonly using? I don't really go to the conferences where I would meet those folks. I think I'm stuck in Elixir land. My general impression is probably C or C++, uh, but you know I don't really have the expertise to speak to that. That's my general assumption. Not being in the, in the system, I'm, it sounds right to me. What about you, Tony? Yeah, I would say the typical setup is pretty atypical. And a lot of that is there's been a lot of growth within the last few years. And so there's a lot of different startups making different bets on different technologies based on what they feel like is valuable on the grid. Like we are valuing concurrency and reliability. As a result, we're choosing Elixir. There's other places that are saying the cloud's the future. What's the most cloud native language that we can use and get developers in? And so they're doubling down on that. Obviously, a little bit of a different space in the hardware world, like Mike's talking about. But it's pretty across the board what kind of languages we end up running into and integrating with. Are you seeing that cause integration issues and things? When most people probably think about their their power supply, their company, the outlets, everything, you know, it all feels pretty antiquated and not necessarily on the cutting edge. I think about these old command and control systems and things like that that really weren't designed for or made to be secure with cloud infrastructure. And you hear fear-mongering around the cloud and the grid. Do you see bringing these, like you said, cloud-ready highly networked technologies to this environment as a challenge or has it been so hungry for a solution that it's working out? Yeah, from my perspective, it really depends on the customer and their use cases and what potentially they might be opening up and doing it. So we have some customers that are very, very conservative on it. Elixir's portability can help us here where we can deliver you software that you can run off the cloud, right? We don't 
have to integrate with a thousand different cloud services to give us our queues or whatever else we need. So that's been really powerful for us. They're certainly very conservative organizations. There are more organizations that are more cutting edge. And so it, it starts to be a bit of a science project. Are you really invested in this? Because what you're talking about is huge within all organizations. There are these people that are dreamers and forward looking and they're trying to get this done. And then there are going to be folks that are going to realize the risks that, that are there and obviously regulatory environment and stuff like that. So it, it really just depends on the type of project and type of integrations that you're dealing with. A lot of those old, old school systems are going to be there for quite a long time. Yeah, I think it's super common that, you know, you talk to enthusiastic young developers, right? And the idea of something having a, even a 10-year lifespan, much less, much longer, is not something a lot of people can wrap their head around. So building for that environment brings a whole nother kind of set of uh, complexity and challenges and, and things to consider when you're making these types of decisions. How about you, Mike? You know, anything with your customers, anything you can share as far as what it's like trying to bring this technology to that space? Yeah, it's interesting because we are kind of all over the map, literally. We do have some relationships in the U.S. and then in the rest of the world. And technological sophistication really can vary where there are still plenty of places in the U.S. doing some processes by spreadsheet. And you just think it's crazy that people haven't digitized this or they just don't know certain metrics about their business. I don't know how that breaks down as a technology problem. Almost anything is better than that. But also like a spreadsheet works pretty well. And these are conservative industries and you want something that works. And I think there's a lot to do with something that someone can understand. You just have to put out something that's better than the process people have now. And you can talk up your tech stack or whatever all day long, but you need to have results. And I think you need probably some sort of history of we've been around for some amount of time. Our CTO has been in the business for a while. He's been with the company for a while, but he was kicking the tires on the Elixir side of it. And I, I said to him, you know, you may not have heard of Elixir, but it's Erlang and it's the beam underneath. This isn't new technology. This is something that's been around a while. And one of our team members comes from the defense industry and they were doing Elixir stuff. People hear Elixir, they say, oh, it's new. But no, this is built on just really, really proven, very solid fundamentals. It's so helpful to have that narrative when you're talking to folks too, to say the telecom industry was built on this. This was the use case. You're familiar with it. We have case studies from it. We're able to harness in, this is tried and true, battle tested, but also be on the cutting edge of what's going on in new software patterns. So it, it really feels like the best of both worlds here. Right. So the history of the beam is a big deal then for you. And Tony, you mentioned specifically, if I'm a reluctant to embrace the cloud company and someone offers me a single binary that kind of has all those microservices rolled in, like you said, you don't have to bring a separate queuing solution, all these things, like there, there's an advantage. I was curious, are there any other OTP beam features that help you sell it beyond those two big ones? I would say the reliability, the concurrency as a first-class citizen and how we're delivering and writing our software, the ability to spin up clustered instances of these things to horizontally scale to the need. Because a lot of these things at one moment might be not consuming very much at all, but then there's an issue on the grid and you need to be able to react quickly to that and scale up to it. Those are the kinds of things that I think about when you're trying to sell that to an organization. Are you saying that something might go wrong? Like uh, some machines might go down and you might not expect that. <laughs> Absolutely. Some of the other OTP features that, I, of course, I'm in the web-facing world most days. So I'm 
typically thinking of caching and using ETS and maybe someday I'll, I'll have an app that gets hot reloaded. <laughs> Are you using some of these other features like hot reloading or ETS, Amnesia, DATS or anything like that? Yes. So we make pretty heavy use of ETS for caching data in our apps. We're not using the hot reloading feature. We're basically using Docker containers and then having a blue green handoff of the state as we're upgrading. And then Mike, what's the story at SmartBeater? OTP everything or OTP nothing? We OTP a lot. We run Elixir on our, so I didn't mention it, but all these electrical meters talk to a central nerves device. So we run nerves, so Elixir on a device in the field, which is a whole thing. And then we also run Elixir in the cloud. So the two talk to each other. On the device side of it, having all of these features of being able to do queues and caching if you need it. We use ETS for a couple of things, but of course, X is kind of in the background of a bunch of other things. Being able to do everything pretty much in Elixir is really useful. And a lot of these systems, when you have the handoff from one system to another, that is often where you get a lot of weird things. So not having to do that is certainly very helpful. And you get all these other kind of interesting benefits of like firmware size. We're not including Redis or something. So when you go to do a firmware deploy, it's one less thing we have to send to a device. Also, our hardware is single core, but we have this great concurrency model where we don't even have to think about it. Sometimes it's silly of the things I think about. I don't know what this computer thinks we're doing where we're doing all these things in parallel, but then we're trying to like force single threading sometimes. It's just, it works really great. And kind of like you hinted at, things go wrong or... There are always kind of surprises on the device. Elixir really is able to handle spikes in traffic pretty well, or there are a lot of ways to think about how you deal with what your traffic patterns are. And you mentioned Redis and, and firmware. Without Elixir and Nerves, can you describe, do you have an idea of what would the alternative be? Yeah, it's interesting. There's kind of the like C, C++, much closer to the metal folks there. And I've heard from some folks who've switched to Nerves and that's really interesting just because there's, I don't know what you call maybe more modern techniques. I don't know. Unit testing is much easier to do, being able to bring this up on your host computer. If you go to the Nerves podcasts and, and documents, you get some really good information there on that. So that's kind of the C and C++ versus Elixir world. And just the idea that you can spend more time on your application logic and being productive and you can take advantage of the concurrency model. So there's that. You can still run Python or you know, JavaScript or something on these devices. I've seen people do it. I've run Python on devices myself. But that can work fine. You probably need Redis or something for your queue. That's probably the biggest thing you need. Maybe some other orchestration kind of helping stuff out there. I think anecdotally, I've seen Elixir be faster there. And having the compiler always helps. All the benefits we talked about, the concurrency. It's a great fit for devices. Fault tolerance and really the supervision trees, both for handling when things fail, but then also for system bring up and encapsulating where things are and limiting the blast radius is very helpful. Awesome. I see a lot of vigorous nodding from Tony. <laughs> I imagine you're seeing some sim similar benefits if you're using nerves as well. Yeah, no, we're not leveraging nerves on our side, but certainly seeing all those similar benefits to server side, trying to be able to react to grid needs quickly. And yeah, limit failure because devices are going to do weird things in the real world. Right. I imagine observability is also, I, I want to say easier. Maybe it's not easier per se, but maybe you have more flexibility or maybe it is quicker to get observability into these running systems. Is that fair to say? 
For us, we've definitely started leveraging a, a lot of the telemetry hooks that are provided in different libraries now. So that's kind of been huge for us to get reliable metrics on what's happening on our system and not feel like we're getting in the way of our code as we're doing it. So that has been huge from us from a Bean feature set. But yeah, there are times you're going in and you're hooking up to Observer and seeing what the heck is going on on these processes right now. Yeah, same. We use telemetry a ton. And it kind of speaks to, there are some solutions in the Elixir world that have just kind of won. And that's very nice that there certainly are competing projects for things and competing tools, but OTP gives you great things with registry and X. And then knowing that telemetry is kind of the solution with a couple of variations, depending on what you want to do for reporters and backends is really helpful. Yeah, Owen and I were just talking about that a bit earlier today about seeing people move from bamboo to swoosh. Or in some cases, when we're talking about a solution, there's kind of a moving target. But I think something that I really like about Elixir and OTP in general is that it brings tools that then you can leverage. And I think, Tony, that's kind of what you were saying with the, it's a good solution because it brings all the tools with it and we don't have to package other things in there. Mike, I think you're saying similar things from a nerve standpoint. So I think Something I'm really curious on, and I think Tony kind of answered this because it sounds like Elixir is not necessarily running on like the battery array that's sitting on the grid somewhere, but more in the cloud. I really want to know if my grid provider uses either of your company's solution, how close to my house is the Elixir? Is it in the box on the side of my house? Is it on some distribution point? How close can I get the Elixir to where I'm sitting? Can you reach out and touch it? I want to reach out and touch it. Definitely not for our solution, right? We're deploying to your region as close as we can, but we're not necessarily providing this on the device. So we, mm-hmm. Generac, obviously, like I said, Ecobee is a part of this. They were acquired mm-hmm. within the past two years or something like that. So I don't know what their solution on the hardware side is, but they've been around a while. It's probably not nerves at this point, but at the end of the day, we're integrating to their APIs and sending those messages as quick as we can. And Mike, how close is Elixir to the outside wall of my house? To our customers, we're within a kilometer, I'd say. So very close. That's cool. Unless you like live near US East 1 or something, that's probably pretty close to the Elixir compared to most people. Yeah, we are very close to the users of our technology. And you know, another important thing is one of the nightmares of working in IoT or devices is this truck roll where you just can't contact your device uh, and you have to send someone out. uh, And that can be very expensive. No one wants to do it. And it's still scary, but Elixir and Nerves has given us a lot of ways to kind of prevent that. And that's been a, a big way to help us sleep at night. Interesting. So are these remote meters connecting, I guess, through wireless cell signal towers, that kind of thing? Or do they have some other kind of connection, if you're allowed to say? Yeah, sure. Definitely. So we have a proprietary mesh wireless protocol that the meters talk to themselves and then eventually talk to this Nerves device. And so the nervous device talks to those, does its thing, and then it talks typically over cellular to our servers in the cloud. That's the gist. Yeah, the data gets back to home base one way or another. Yep. And so dealing with your device goes offline. Well, why is it offline? Is it because the internet's out? Is it because the power went away? Is it because I wrote some bug two months ago that is finally now getting uncovered? Being able to bring this up locally and replay some scenarios or some of the telemetry and monitoring and metrics, that's really helpful for diagnostics. And when you talk about the mesh network of these non-NERVS devices communicating with the NERVS local, we'll call it a hub, I'm curious, what's the scale and volume of data that's being through this, I think you said a single core NERVS device? 
Do you have an idea of how much data is hitting that machine? Yeah, I do. I have to be careful with numbers, of course, but these can talk to anywhere from tens. It really depends on the installation from tens of the devices to thousands. And that makes our traffic patterns interesting for a couple of reasons, which is we might have a device which is not very busy, but then we have devices which are very busy. You know, you always have to think about your worst case situation and really plan for that. And oftentimes it's maybe not as much the volume, it's our traffic patterns where we typically get this reading data in 15 minute intervals. So zero minutes on the hour, 15 minutes on the hour, 30, 45, we get a big burst of data. And we're sort of DDoSing ourselves in some ways. We have ways to spread that out when we talk to the meters, but we collect that, we have to process it, and then we're also communicating. So in some ways, we're even just doubling our traffic with trying to send that up as quickly as possible. So that's where things like the scheduler is really nice, where if I know even if this is coming in, but then the cellular modem needs to have some question or there's some other thing that goes onto the device, like the scheduler will just handle this and make sure everybody gets a reasonable amount of processing time. And then also we use Broadway things with back pressure and having this idea of, well, even if we have a large queue of things, we can just process that as it goes in with the rest of the system. Awesome. So, and I'm thinking about, so let's say a blog, your traffic gets bursty if you go viral, right? Like you write the world's most excellent blog post and then everyone wants to go read it. So you're hitting your site. Maybe you're deployed to multiple regions or not. And if you're, I don't know, like a ticketing company or a sports company, like you're getting hit at different times based on events that are happening relevant to your system. Your companies are more, your traffic seems like it would be more dictated by weather. So let's imagine a storm comes to town and it's rolling through some Generac devices. How is your device network impacted? What do you see through the Elixir system when that happens? Yeah, Totally. And this is a place where Elixir has a pretty big advantage over some of the cloud solutions out there, because like you were talking about in the blog example, it's like you, you start a ramp so you can start preparing and know like, hey, this is happening. And that's not necessarily what a grid need looks like at all. It's like absolutely nothing. There's tumbleweed coming down the fiber. And then all of a sudden, we need tons and tons of throughput to get the messages out to all the devices. And it, it might be really, really quick control. So having a system that can be built for that, that doesn't have some kind of burst limits and we, when you can bring up scale, grand, you, you need to have those servers running and ready to go to be able to handle that. I think it's a pretty big advantage on Elixir being able to handle that kind of scale because the cloud internet isn't really built for that kind of situation. They're more built towards the blog that's picking up speed kind of scenario. All right, Mike, when a storm comes to the spark meter mesh, how is your day affected? <laughs> <laughs> Good question. You know, for us, it can be something along the lines of we have a couple systems that were offline and all of a sudden they come online. So maybe there was some maintenance done and that was why our devices were offline. So our stuff is probably more human caused or there's internet or device weather patterns, maybe we'll say. But that certainly happens. And like I said, dealing with a lot of the back pressure, Elixir gives us some of that. We put in some things additionally just to make sure that one noisy device doesn't really ruin the party for everybody else. So definitely things to think about there. So we talked about the regulatory nature of this and the demand change of sources of power, being able to handle fluctuations in power, the unpredictability of the world uh, and how that impacts the business. Given 
the reality that you both see in the future of your business and the work that you need to do with Elixir. What do you want to see? What would be helpful? What are you hoping comes down the line? If you were core committing, what things would you want to add? Is there anything you think you need that you don't have today? There's a lot that I'm very thankful that I have. And when it came out, I, I didn't know that I needed it. I think the Elixir core team has been really good at getting to the heart of abstractions and creating the right, really powerful abstraction that just works and handles a bunch of use cases. The more and more the engineers that I work with can be good Elixir developers that are harnessing things in Elixir standard library and known best practices instead of us inventing new wheels on our side. We were mentioning Broadway and Gen Stage. Those have been huge abstractions and that's not something that someone needs to teach all of the developers around them why this is important. It's within the community and it's talked about and people have their own experiences with it and are able to share it and it's going to be useful the next place you go and we're going to have people that come in that already know it. Those kinds of things are really huge for us. I think further maturity on tooling and distributed Elixir kind of things would be really helpful. I'm thankful for Horde and the work that's gone into it. I think that we've got more work to do in those kinds of situations to set ourselves up for success in a distributed Erlang environment. As we move forward, there's a lot of power there for us to be able to leverage, and it can get complicated and tricky real quick. And so I think that there's some room for some really good abstractions there. We've already got some, but would love more of that. Oh, Tony, I'm so glad that you answered it that way. I'm so glad that I was on this episode. I'm thinking back, oh, into the first episode and spent all week trying to think, what do I want to see? What have I enjoyed about this? And I think, Tony, what you just said, it makes some things that because of the abstraction, they're more accessible, you know, more accessible to the team, more accessible to try out, more accessible to deploy in the field without a whole lot of like pomp and circumstance around it. And yeah, maybe it's hard to predict what's going to come down the line, but when it gets in there, you know that it will be usable, that it will open up advantages that you didn't have before. And that's what's really exciting for me about the future of this language and what we're sitting here seeing on the horizon. Mike, do you have thoughts on the same? Yeah. In some ways, I feel like the beam was so far ahead of things and then the world caught up in the cloud. And I think there's still a lot of opportunity to do things in the beam, but the question is always, well, when do you do stuff in the beam versus when do you do stuff with another tool? And I think there's still a lot to be figured out there. Something we also think about is when do we do something in Elixir versus when do we do it in a more traditional tool? And how do you bring up either people who aren't experienced in Elixir or junior devs? And how do you make this so you don't have to have five years of Elixir to understand how something works? And so I think there's a really good balance there. And if you are an expert in Elixir, you say, oh, well, of course, it's just this type of supervisor and this supervision tree here. But to somebody else, they might say, well, why didn't you just use SQS or something? So I think part of it is just getting the patterns of how do things work well in the cloud or on a device? And where is the natural handoff between a lot of capabilities of the Beam or where the Beam can really outshine? How do we make sure that we're telling that story? Totally agree there. I like that the core team has embraced these other systems like Broadway. We've got a pattern for interacting with SQS. It's like you want to play with SQS and Elixir. Here you go. Go and do it. So creating those easy and known seams between these tools that are emerging that have lots of great qualities to them that we can easily be able to hook into and leverage the best of what's out there. I think that that's huge. So certainly Broadway, we harness some Nebulix where you can create an adapter basically that says, hey, this is this day is actually going to be on Redis. 
but it could tomorrow be an ETS and it, it doesn't really matter. We've got a good abstraction between it. We can interact with it. We know what's going on. I think Elixir further embracing all the cool stuff that's going on in the world has been really helpful for us. It's always good to hear. And of course, the season theme for season 10 is, you know, the next 10 years of Elixir with the grid, you know, in our generation, we're expecting a lot of change to happen over the next 10 years, not only with Elixir, but with the electric grid itself. I'm curious kind of between both of you, like what are some ways that you're seeing the grid change and how you think it might change in the next 10 years if we were to come back in 2033 and how Elixir might evolve uh, with the grid as you're using it? I think the biggest thing is that generation is going to be more and more distributed, right? We've been centralized for a long time in our generation of energy for the grid. And so now it's distributed, which is great from a resiliency standpoint. There's not just one big power plant somewhere uh, that's doing it. And obviously the sources of the energy are going to be a lot more healthy for us and further generations. So it's great, but it's a lot simpler problem when you've got like a knob at one place that you can just turn and say more energy, please pump more coal into the furnace or, or whatever you're doing there. It's a lot more difficult problem. And the grid, hopefully this is obvious from this, it always needs to be in balance. We always have to be producing exactly as much as we're consuming. And so when there's generation that's spread out, it takes some technology solutions to be able to figure out how to make that happen. Yeah, I think Tony hit the nail on the head. We're seeing a change in supply and demand at the same time for the next, for decades. And it's very exciting. It was one of the things that really appealed to me about SparkMeter was it was this intersection of energy, developing world, Africa having such a large population growth and all these changes. You know, as in the developed world, electricity is changing. More and more people additionally are getting access to electricity and better access to electricity where there are still plenty of places where it's common to have blackouts through the day. So whether that is some sort of battery technology, which then helps to smooth that out, whether that's additional monitoring to say, hey, your blackouts are caused by this thing over here. It's really a kind of across the board between we have all the solar and wind, but nowhere to store it. When is this technology coming along to we have all these people who are now using electricity? How do we make sure they're getting it? And in a way that doesn't increase our emissions. Marlon, and I'm also thinking of in a past life, my concern was mostly, is the line in the air or underground? Because that tells me whether I'm about to have a bad day or not. When I was doing a tech support, if the cable was in the ground and a storm would come through in certain parts of the country, that state was going to have no power for a couple of days. And if they were in a more like buried line kind of area, it was uh, usually a little bit more resilient to, you know, any kind of climate events. Ironically, for today's topic, like off-grid is becoming more of an option as well. If you have solar and you have some battery on-site capacity, then you may not necessarily need lines connected directly to your house. If you're, I think the use case right now is you live out in the woods or an island somewhere, and that's a little bit more high-tech now that you can be electrified. Are there other lessons worth learning from other parts of the globe as they become connected, either in a grid or off-grid kind of way? Definitely. As I was talking about, solar penetration being a lot ahead of us in Australia and Europe and things like that. 
dealing with the overgeneration in the middle of the day, having regulations on what to do during those times of day, because overgeneration is just as big a problem on the grid as not producing enough. We're going to see more and more of those kinds of things as we get more solar penetration, which is great, but we're going to need to learn how to manage that in the States. And so that's coming, obviously, growth of EVs and what does charging EVs do for our expectation on how much energy we need out of the grid when? How are we going to start thinking about shifting those needs around to be able to better utilize the production that we have? All of those kinds of things are coming. You've mentioned overgeneration a couple of times, and it just it reminds me that I grew up near a, a hydro pump storage station, and I remember having no idea what it was, learning about it, and then recognizing the inefficiency of that, and yet how that's still better than just losing extra generation during the night, that all the inefficiency of pumping a bunch of water uphill is still better than dumping it as heat into the air. Those challenges, especially in this country, are generally kind of hidden from. We don't worry about it. And I think it is really an exciting time. Obviously, you both find this field particularly exciting. You know, the rate of change here, both on the generation and on the consumption side, is particularly interesting. And it's cool to see how this technology we all love fits in. Do you guys have any questions for each other? One of the things, thinking of your use case, Mike, and you talking about the back pressure of telemetry and how you're using GenStage for ingesting that. And it sounds like you can record these and it's important for billing for reconciliation, maybe at the end of the month or things like that. Kind of curious because we've got a lot of like, hey, we've got to make a decision like a minute ago about what <laughs> what this home needs to be doing. And so a lot of the let's wait and see kind of things, eventually we'll have this data, the eventual consistency kind of stuff. We're wanting to push back and have some data we don't care about. It's reporting. We're going to get there. And some data is absolutely like real time, as as fresh as we can get it, like we want it. I'm wondering if you have some of those use cases and how you are able to manage the differences between data that's maybe prioritized versus in real time and data that is like reporting and later. Yeah, that is a great question. I think every generation deals with this in IoT software or something and thinks they reinvented solutions, but decisions at the edge and prioritizing data and also just making sure the data gets there reliably, that it gets there in order is incredibly challenging. And so I'd say probably the simplest way to do it is just do as much as you can in the cloud. And I'd say that should be your default. If I can't do this in the cloud, why not? Because if you have to do it closer on the edge, closer to the device, there are absolutely benefits to doing that. But coordinating the consistency, like you mentioned, and getting those messages back and forth becomes much more challenging. That said, we do a lot on the edge, particularly on this device, because we can't always rely on the connectivity. We have sites that are online all the time. We have sites that are offline for hours or for days. And in our case, if someone is over-consuming and they go past their allotted consumption, that's a financial loss for our operators. So it's not really acceptable to do that. So we do a lot of processing on the device to manage that, we pretty much build as the data comes in. There is an interesting question about, well, why don't you push that further? Why don't you put it on the meter? And that's certainly a very good question. You sort of push the problem somewhere else. It is one spot along the chain where you can do that processing. As far as prioritizing data, we do prioritize what we process. And that also helps us with you know 
we can do stuff in batches, which is always more efficient as well, which is nice. But prioritizing that is difficult because we also have to deal with the connection between the device to the cloud and what do we send first. My general recommendation there would be to split your stuff into streams and just have your whatever high priority stream and do that first. And just everything there is the reliable. And then you have your, I hope it gets there in a reasonable amount of time stream. We also have to deal with the RF communication to these meters and balancing either bad conditions, someone's running all their microwaves or vacuum cleaners and that killed the RF, or we do something that just increases the traffic budget there. So that's been super interesting. I think a lot of these is just being able to, even if you mess something up, it's not the end of the world, but you got to be able to recover. And you also have to think about, well, there was either a gap in data or we lost something. How do we reconcile that and then show it to people in a way that they understand it versus you get like a pixelated version of something, uh, whatever the equivalent of that of your data is. Awesome. Before we unplug and plug it back in for this episode, or that, that pun failed so bad. I'm going to, let's, we're going to have to delete that one. Are you trying to power it down? <laughs> Before we unplug it and plug it back in. Uh, yeah, that's not going to work. Have you tried turning that pun off and on again? All right. Now it's got to <laughs> stay in just because Dan saved it. All right. So before I <laughs> shame myself with another bad pun, are there any final plugs? Uh, I'll start with you, Mike. Do you have any final plugs or asks for the audience with your side projects or Spark Meter? I'd just like to say a big thank you to all the open source contributors. We rely on a ton of that, you know, both on Elixir and certainly on Nerves, and we wouldn't be here without them. So big thanks to everybody there. Yeah, I would definitely echo that. We definitely wouldn't be where we're at as a company. We wouldn't be solving as interesting of problems if we didn't have these really powerful abstractions that we're able to leverage. So super grateful to the community, both for the work of creating them, but also the great work of communicating and building the community of folks that knows how to leverage these tools. I'm right there with you. Awesome. Well, I'm going to go to pun detention. And thank you both for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Owen. Elixir Wizards is a production of Smart Logic. You can find us online at smartlogic.io, and we're at SmartLogic on Twitter. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a review. This episode was produced and edited by Paloma Pachenik for Smart Logic. We'll see you next week for more on the next 10 years of Elixir. Hey, this is your ear flicker, president of SmartLogic, the company that brings you this podcast. SmartLogic is a consulting company that helps our clients accelerate the pace of their product development. We build custom software applications for our clients, typically using Phoenix and Elixir, Rails, React, and Flutter for mobile app development. We're always happy to get acquainted, even if there isn't an immediate need or opportunity. And of course, referrals are always greatly appreciated. Please email contact at smartlogic.io to chat. Thanks and have a great day.